Amen. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Coronavirus Sunday. It's good to see you guys. Surprised to see so many faces. That's awesome. The time change, the coronavirus. I'm surprised. I'm surprised to see so few facial masks and gloves. People are hugging necks and shaking hands. Y'all are crazy. What are you thinking? Uh, coronavirus. Wow. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me this week, I read a headline, and this is what the headline said, violence erupts at local Costco over toilet paper. <laughs> coronavirus scare. Some of our own people here in this church, Heather was just telling us last night she was at Costco, they were out of toilet paper, out of water, out of all the essentials. People are freaking out. Coronavirus scare. Coronavirus desperation. And some of you can relate. You're like, yeah, actually, I was there. I was the one who grabbed the last roll of toilet paper. That was, that was me. This sermon's for you today. And some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe people are panicking. These people, I am shocked that they would get in a fight over toilet paper. This sermon is also for you today. All right, so we're going to go for it. The main reason I bring all this up is to make a point. When you're hungry, you'll do almost anything to get food. When you're thirsty, you'll do crazy stuff to get water. When you're afraid of global pandemics and catastrophe, you're going to get that toilet paper. And when you're desperate for something, you'll do almost anything to get it. You'll use whatever you have at your disposal. You'll employ people. You'll expend your strength. You'll engage all of your ingenuity to get things out of the way, to get obstacles out of the way, and get to what your heart is longing for. And this story that we're going to walk through today is no different. There's obstacles between the man we're going to read about and Jesus. And Jesus is his healer, and Jesus is his savior, and we're going to journey with him to see how he overcomes those obstacles. And along the way, we're going to see he's not actually the only one in this story with obstacles. There's obstacles between him and Jesus, but everyone in this story has obstacles between them and Jesus. For some... Like him, it's their situation. But for others, it's their sin. And for others, it's their self-righteousness and their pride. They all have obstacles, and yet Jesus is reaching for all of them, and he's doing extraordinary things to reach their hearts and help them overcome the obstacles that lie between them and him. So as we start this journey today, I want you to do me a favor and ask yourself a question. What might be some of the obstacles in my life right now that have come between me and Jesus? Maybe it's overpacked schedules. You just don't have time to pray or read the Word in the morning or, or gather with community. Or maybe there's broken, sinful patterns in your life. Or maybe you've got these big theological questions that you can't seem to resolve, and now you've like, ended up with an emotional distance between you and Jesus. Or maybe it's desires for things outside of God and outside of His will for your life. But what obstacles, whatever they are today, what obstacles have come between me and Jesus? Jesus is the healer and Savior. If, if the life that we long for can only be found with Jesus, how can we break through those obstacles today? You guys ready? Let's go. Number one, situations. Let's look at verse 17. Luke, we've been preaching through Luke, and here we go. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have some down here. We'll have the scriptures up here. You can follow along on your smartphones. There's some cool Bible apps there as well. 
Verse 17, one day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So, just a a brief recap, back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus basically starts his ministry out of Capernaum, a city in Galilee where Simon Peter lives. It's the, the village of Nahum, the prophet, that he was born into. And so Jesus did a bunch of miracles there. He healed all the sick there. He called his disciples there to follow him. And then he left. And he went around to other villages around Galilee. And last week we discovered that he healed a leper in Luke chapter 5. And, you know, lepers at this point are the people everybody's afraid of. They're recoiling from them in culture. And Jesus heals this guy. His flesh is made whole. All of a sudden, he gets a restored life in every way. And Jesus says, now go and show yourself to the priest, but don't tell anybody that I did this for you. And the leper does not obey. The leper goes out. He tells everybody. People are gathering from all over to see Jesus, to get their healings. They can't wait. And now we find Jesus here. Uh, Mark, in this section of the story, says that he's back in Capernaum. He's gone back, and he's just trying to catch a break. The guy doesn't have a moment. He tries to get away to these wilderness places just to get some rest with God. But he's exhausted. Now he's back at Peter's house. It's the morning time. The birds are chirping. He opens his eyes, and peeping through the windows, bunch of little kids, bunch of little eyes. Is the prophet awake yet? Jesus is back. The healer is back in town. So that's the stage it's set. And verse 18 says, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Now wait, I mean, hadn't they brought all the sick, all the demon possessed and everybody to Jesus in that area already and he'd healed them? So where, where did this guy come from? You know, I'm imagining a scene. It's like early in the morning, like 3 a.m. It's time change Sunday, and everybody's still asleep, right? But there's a knock on his door. And he comes, and he opens the door, and there's just three buddies, and they say, hey, the healer's back. Give me a second. I'll grab my coat. He gets his coat, and the four of them make their way down, and they get to their buddy's house. Now, this guy, we'll call him Bobby. Bobby He's the cutest kid in the world, man. Everybody loved Bobby. He was born. He had the biggest smile, heart of gold, like a Tiny Tim type of person. But when he sat up and woke up, he was never able to get up. His legs didn't work. His body didn't work the way he wanted it to. His brain wasn't sending the right kinds of messages through his nervous system. So here's Bobby, little kid, heart of gold. Everybody loves him. His dad makes him this cool little sleigh-like sled-looking thing with two poles and a sheet and takes Bobby everywhere around with him. And Bobby sees the entire world in reverse. It's amazing. He sees all the life going on in the villages, and he's filled with wonder and awe. And he'll never forget that first time when they went to Jerusalem, and he saw the lights of the big city and everything going on. It was amazing. And there in the distance, he could see the temple. And everybody, we're going to go to the temple. We're going to offer the sacrifices. And his parents go, and his, his siblings go. But Bobby gets left outside the temple. Because only people who are whole can go into the temple. And if you've got blind eyes, and if you've got lame legs and withered hands, you can't go in. And suddenly, Bobby starts realizing that in many ways in this life, he's going to feel on the outside. 
And his friends grow up, and they're getting girlfriends and boyfriends, and all this life is happening, and they're getting apprenticeships with their fathers and uncles, and Bobby's left on a stretcher at home. And he could have gotten bitter, and he could have gotten angry at God and angry at life, and could have pushed everybody away, but we know he didn't because in this story, Bobby's got at least four friends who are still his buddies, who are still willing to put themselves out there and find a way, if there is any way, to get him to Jesus. So here they come early in the morning, and they pick him up, and they start carrying him, and they're walking. And it must have been a long way because everybody in that region had been healed already. So who knows where they're coming from? It says they came from as far as Judea and even Jerusalem, but here comes Bobby. Four friends carrying him. And it's a long road, man. Over the hills, through the woods. They're exhausted. They're tired. They have to switch sides because their left arm gets tired. They have to switch front to back. Here they go. They're, they're going. The sun starts coming up, and the mist starts burning off the Sea of Galilee. And now they're sweating, but they keep going. And they keep going to the village, and finally they get there, and it's like a ghost town. There's nobody here. Where, where is everybody? But there's a dull roar, kind of like the sea, over here on the right, which is confusing because the Sea of Galilee is that way. But what is that roar? When they come around the corner through the village, they see stretched out on the lawn, like Woodstock, like a music festival, are people as far as the eye can see. The entire village is there. All the villages are there. They're sitting on the grass, and they start making their way through the crowd. But as they get closer to this house where the healer is, it gets harder and harder to fit through. Pretty soon they hit a wall. What are we going to do? We can't get him in there to Jesus. What would you do? Jesus is the healer and savior. Jesus is the one who's got everything. And this guy's situation is impossible. It's an obstacle. His legs are an obstacle. His distance between him and Jesus is an obstacle. The crowd around Jesus is an obstacle. What did this guy possess to get past his obstacles and get to Jesus? And what can we learn from this? First thing he had was community. Look at verse 18. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. If you're going to get past your obstacles and get to Jesus today, the first thing you need is community. A lot of us struggle with that in probably the most individualistic culture that's ever existed on the face of the earth. We like to imagine ourselves as self-reliant. I put myself through college, pick myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm a self-made man, right? You're not. You're not. None of us are. <laughs> We all came into this world kicking and screaming and crying out for help, and we were totally dependent in those first few years of our life. People raised us. People fed us. People changed our diapers. People taught us to use toilet paper that we fight over at Costco. People <laughs> educated us. People sacrificed for us. Even the most self-reliant among us has to admit that we wouldn't have made it here without others. And the Bible emphasizes community from the beginning. God is a triune God who creates everything, unity in community. And when he creates everything in seven days, let there be light. And he saw that the light was good. Right? You guys remember? And he separates the water from the land and the trees appear and the fish and the birds. And on the seventh day, he makes man. And every time he makes something, he says, it is what? Good. And then he makes man, puts him in a garden and says, it is not good. It is not good that man is alone. I'll provide someone for him. 
the one thing God says was not good was for you to be alone. You need community. I need community. Everyone needs it because we were created for community. Jesus starts off his ministry with community by calling community around himself. And everybody he sends out on mission all the way through the book of Acts, how do they go out? Do they go out like lone rangers? No, in community, in twos and threes. Community is a motif of the entire story of God. Now this man with paralyzed legs, he would have never made it to Jesus without these four men. And an important side note that's obvious, but we should point it out, is that he brought his struggles into community. Like imagine, can you imagine if this man would have never admitted he needed help? If he had just kind of covered up his need, where would he have been? But a lot of us do that, right? You wouldn't believe what I've seen over the years. Most of us prefer safe, steady, shallow community. We prefer the kind of community that we can keep at arm's length at a safe distance. And when stuff gets messy, we pull back and we cover our lives up. And inside, we struggle in silence. Henry David Thoreau says, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Here's what I'm saying. Some of us need to get past ourselves today and admit that we need help. And reach out and ask somebody today, help me, would you help me get past my obstacles and get to Jesus? Bring your struggles into the community of Christ. Listen, it's a room of grace here. We've all been broken from the fall. There's nobody here who's got it all together. Church is not a country club for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. We need one another. We're created for community. And the reason this guy gets healed is because the community around him saw his struggle and stepped in. I want to ask you today, if you're new here or if you've been here a while and you haven't hopped into a gospel community on mission, don't wait. Get into community. We need community around us. Get into a DNA group where people can know you as you are and love you as you are and help hold you accountable to the life that God is bringing into your life, what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. This man would have never made it to Jesus without community. And point number two, let me speed this up. Verse 18, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Mark chapter 2, verse 3 says he was carried by four of them. Not one, not two, not three, not four. Why? Because he's heavy, right? Let's just state the obvious for a second. The guy's heavy, and he's probably so heavy, and they're probably carrying him for such a long way, for such a long time, that they're starting to sound like that sweet little baby back there. Oh, my goodness. My muscles feel like they're ripping, and I'm tired, and we need to take breaks, and we need to switch sides and share the load and sweat and heavy breathing and exhaustion. It took effort. It took strength. It took intentionality. This wasn't some small thing. In other words, it cost them something. They spent their time, their energy and effort to get this guy to Jesus. It takes effort to get from one place to another. It takes effort to carry someone. It takes effort to keep going when you're spent. It takes effort to go out of your way at all and sacrifice yourself. It took effort, energy, and strength, but it wasn't effort alone. It was also creativity, because when they got there, they realized there's no way through. It was impossible. Now what? They'd come all this way. They're going to have to turn around and go home and have nothing to show for it. There's no way they could press through that crowd and get him to Jesus. Then... One of them has an idea. Ding! 
light bulb. All right, let's read verse 19. When they could not find a way through the crowd to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Put yourself in there for a second. What would you have done? Right? I mean, this is, don't take that for granted. This is not normal behavior. This is, this is pretty wild. He might as well said, you know, I got an idea. Let's dig a tunnel and we'll come up like gophers in front of Jesus. I mean, this is on par with that. Right? This is not, you don't do this kind of thing. And Mrs. Peter's going to be really ticked, right? She spent all day cleaning. Now her house is smelly and full of people. It's already crowded, and now dust is falling from the ceiling, and she looks up, and somebody's ripping her roof (laughs) off. Mrs. Peter's about to get ticked, right? And the crowd's going to get ticked, too, because I've been waiting here all day, buddy. Get in line. We're not getting in line. We're going up on that roof. This is desperate behavior. This is coronavirus desperation right here. (laughs) Desperate behavior. This is radical faith. But I love this, though, because it's creativity. It's ingenuity. It's like those bank heist movies like Ocean's Eleven where they're trying to find a way to break into the impossible casino vault, right? You guys like those movies? That's what this is like. There are things in life that seem impossible, But where there is God-given creativity, there's always a way. Life finds a way. Jurassic Park dinosaurs taught us that. We should know this by now. (laughs) Had to get one dad joke in there. That was for you, Trevor. (laughs) So these guys had community. They had one another. They had effort. They pulled together. They had creativity. Two heads are better than one, and four heads are better than two, right? But what empowered their efforts, what fueled the creativity, what pulled them together was what we see in verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith. What did Jesus see? Their faith. Now, how could he see it? How could he see their faith? Because of what they did. Notice what faith isn't. Faith isn't just like well-wishing. Oh, bless your heart. I'll say a prayer for you, you know. Faith isn't just like words of wisdom of this world. You know, behind every dark cloud, there's a silver lining. It's like, dude, come on, man. I'm lame here. I don't need those words. What is faith? Faith is action. Faith is shown by what they did. Biblically, faith is always linked to action. James puts it this way. Faith without works is what? Dead. Faith acts. Faith overcomes obstacles. Faith will push you to extraordinary limits. They believed Jesus could heal him, and so they did something extraordinary. They pulled together and pressed every obstacle to get him to Jesus. And notice something else. It doesn't say Jesus saw his faith. It says Jesus saw their faith. Maybe you are struggling here today. Maybe some of you are struggling in your faith. Maybe you feel crippled by life. Maybe there's physical ailments that have plagued you for a long time, or you got a doctor's report that seems insurmountable. Or maybe you've been plagued by disastrous situations or broken patterns or by depression or anxiety, and you feel crippled by life. Maybe you don't even feel like you have enough faith for yourself. You're just barely hanging on. You barely got in here today. 
If you don't have enough faith for yourself, borrow someone else's. There are people here who have enough faith for you. There are people here who will carry you if you'll let them. And you'll open those struggles up to community. I love what Charles Spurgeon says in his famous sermon on this passage. Today, wherever four persons come together praying for some poor soul, you may rest assured that the power of the Lord will be there present to heal. I do not think that so much of the success of sermons depends upon the preacher, thank God, as much as upon those hearers who are all the while praying for a blessing and who are making other members of the congregation the constant subject of their supplication. Christ blessed this man because of the faith of the four who carried him and possibly because of his own faith. If you don't have what it takes to get to Jesus today, that's okay. That's why he placed us in the family. Galatians 2 says it this way, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. How do we fulfill the law of Christ? How do we truly love God and love one another, like Jesus said? Carry each other's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So one, If you look within yourself and you can't find strength, look around this room. It's filled with people who would love to help you get to Jesus. Also, too, quick question. Whose burdens are you carrying? We all need somebody to carry our burdens from time to time, but the question also is like, are you in community enough with some people that you know what they're actually struggling with and going through? Whose burdens are you carrying today? So situations conspire to keep us from Jesus. We need faith, effort, creativity, community to help us get through. But situations aren't the only thing we see in this story. Number two, sin. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the guy, what? Your sins are forgiven. What was it that this guy wanted from Jesus? It seems pretty obvious, right? I mean, it seems obvious to me. I know, you know. We all know, but it doesn't seem like Jesus knows. Jesus walks over to him, and instead of saying, rise and be healed, what's he say? Friend, your sins are forgiven you. What? <laughs> How would you have responded to that? Uh, gee, thanks, man. Um, <laughs> I think everybody can plainly see why I'm here, though. <laughs> everybody except you, apparently. Um, I think I got a more urgent problem here. You ever felt like that? And Jesus says, no, you don't. That's the whole point. You think you know the main problem of your life, and you don't. Jesus is saying, look, I know you have problems. I know you're suffering. I'm going to get to that. I know you've been the victim of terrible things that weren't your fault. I'm going to get to that. But first, the main problem in a person's life is never their suffering. It's their sin. So what's he do? He used this situation to address the deeper need of sin. And sin's the main problem. And as I'm preparing, I'm thinking, am I really going to stand up here in public in San Diego and tell people what this text says? Because honestly, a lot of people might find this offensive or offensing. (laughs) Even if you do find this offensive, would you please consider this? Ironically, when you say to somebody, which Jesus is saying to us here in this text, 
the main problem in your life is not what's happened to you, not what people have done to you, not what's occurred. Your main problem is the wrong ways in which you've responded to what happened. Ironically, that's actually empowering. Because you can't do much about what's happened to you. But you can always choose what you're going to do about it. Some of us need to rise above those victim mentalities that claim hold on our identities today, not because we've never been victimized, but because we choose our response, because we refuse to allow what others have done to us to control our lives or define us. And this truth is so empowering if you'll take hold of it. So what is Jesus asking for this man to do? Jesus is driving him deeper to the thing behind the thing. Jesus is saying, by simply asking for your body to be healed, you're not actually going deep enough. He's saying you've underestimated the depths of your desires and your actual needs. What's that mean? Jesus is saying something like this. Everyone in this world wants to be healthy. Everyone wants to be able to walk and be whole. Anyone who's paralyzed is going to want to walk. Of course, it's only natural. It's what we were created for. Before sin came into this world, we all would have been healed and whole. Of course, this man must have been resting all of his hope in that healing. He's got to be thinking, man, if I could only walk, then my life would be right. I'd never be unhappy again. I'd never be discontented again. I'd never complain again. And Jesus is saying, you're mistaken. Listen, friend, if all I do is heal your body, what's your first response going to be? Euphoria? Joy, ecstasy, you'll say, I'll never be unhappy again. Never, never, never. It's going to be awesome. But give yourself two months. Give yourself four months. And you know this because the roots of our discontent goes really deep, doesn't it? We see it all the time. I, I, earlier uh, this week, I was in the grocery aisle getting toilet paper. And um, <laughs> I saw, <laughs> saw the magazines and another celebrity marriage falling apart. Another celebrity mar- uh, marriage coming together. We we love this thing, this whole celebrity thing. How do we explain this phenomenon in our culture called celebrity, where people go and they read that magazine like their life depends on it to find out what's going on in other people's lives? Celebrities are perfectly normal people at first, and then their lives seem to go off the rails when they get fame and fortune that they desire. Why? Cynthia Heimel says it this way. I pity celebrities. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. The morning after each one of them became famous, however, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay and was going to make their lives bearable, was going to provide them with the personal fulfillment and happiness, has happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. So she's saying that she's sorry for them because they finally got what they desired. They finally got the thing where they said, if I could only have that, then I'd be happy. But they weren't. And then she says this, I think when God wants to play a rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. Oof. You know what Jesus is saying to this paralyzed man? I'm not, I'm not going to play that rotten joke on you. I'm not going to give you your deepest wish, not until it's no longer your deepest wish. Here's a question. What is your, and we say this a lot here, but it's, it's, it's worth it. What is your, if this, then I'll be happy. 
then my life will have meaning, security, value, whatever. And counterfeit gods, Tim Keller says it this way. The Bible says our deepest problem is every one of us is building our identity on something else besides Jesus. We're looking at something, whether it's to walk or to make it or a relationship or a condition or a situation. We're looking at something and saying, if I had that, then everything will be okay. But when you do that, you look to those things and say, if I had that, then I'd be significant, then I'd be safe, then I'd be secure. You're looking at those things to save you. Here's the problem. When you're looking at those things to give you life, to save you, think of how it affects you. If you don't get them, then you're always angry, you're always unhappy, you're always unfulfilled, you're always empty. But if you do get them, then you're even more empty, even more angry, even more unhappy. And Jesus says, I'm the only Savior that if you get me, I will fulfill you. And if you fail me, I will forgive you. That's why we often go to Jesus exactly like this man. We, we first start going to Jesus and we're thinking about, oh man, I have all these problems in my life. I need to go to church. I got all these struggles in my life. I need to bring those to Jesus. Maybe Jesus will help me with them. And it doesn't occur to us that maybe our deepest problem is we're looking to something besides Jesus as Savior. We're not going to Jesus and saying, have my life. We're going to Jesus and saying, give me my life on my terms, the way I want it. So almost all of us, when we first go to him, we're saying, hey, this is my problem. It's my legs. It's this thing. It's my finances. It's my job. It's this relationship. It's whatever. And he says, no, you've got a lot deeper problem with that, and you've got to dive deeper. You don't just want to turn over a new leaf or change a few things. I, I, you just want to like reach some new plateau, some new goal, but you have to change the very thing that your heart wants most because that's what's screwing you up. How can we change what our heart wants? We're going to get to that in three minutes. But first, real quick, the third thing. Third thing, I'm going to skip a couple slides for time. Self-righteousness. Verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see that? What Jesus is saying here is blasphemous, punishable by death. What Jesus is saying here, way out of bounds. These Pharisees are totally right. You know why? You know what Jesus is claiming? What does he claim when he says, he looks at this man and he says, I forgive all your sins. (laughs) He's saying all your sins have been against me. Everything you've ever done is against me. Look, if we're hanging out here after church, or let's just say we all went to Costco to get toilet paper. And one of you got the last rolls. You got the package. And another one of you walks up and smacks them right across the face <laughs> to grab those toilet paper rolls out of their hand. Can you, you picture the scene? Okay. Now imagine I walk up to the person who just got smacked and I help him up from the ground. And I say, it's Okay me a second and I walk up to the other person who smacked him and I say I want you to know what you did to them was wrong but I forgive you (laughs) be like you can't forgive them they slapped me right doesn't make sense only the person who got sinned against can forgive the sin who can forgive someone only your creator only your lord could say this like 
The person who made you can say, I made you for a purpose, and when you violate that purpose, you're violating the very thing I made you for. You sinned against me. So only he has the power to forgive sins. Jesus Christ, by forgiving this man, is claiming to be God Almighty. And the Pharisees see that. There's no question about it. And the Pharisees are right. Either he's a blasphemer or he's God. No middle ground. So don't tell me today that Jesus was just a nice teacher, a really cool hipster rabbi. No, he's either the one who can forgive sins or he's not. If he can, he's God. If he's not, he's a blasphemer. They know this and they can't stand it. And they can't see him and his goodness through the foggy lens of their own self-righteousness. And that's one of the obstacles that gets in the way of us and Jesus. For some of us, it's our sin. For others of us, it's our self-righteousness and our and pride. In fact, Christianity is the only religion in the world that calls us to repent, not only of our unrighteousness, but also because of our self-righteousness. Because it can keep us just as far away from God. Because it can keep us far from him. But Jesus is not going to allow them to keep him at a distance. So look at verse 22. He's going to challenge them. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? What I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. Drops the mic, the crowd goes wild, the guy jumps up with his mat and goes home, and the place is in an uproar. But I want to focus in on that question. Which is easier to say? I think this is one of the greatest questions in the Bible. It's been studied for over 2,000 years. I was reading a commentator who said, after 20 centuries and millions of pages written on this, we still have a good question here in front of us, and that is, which is easier? Honestly, we still don't know the answer to that question. Jesus says, which is easier? Let me ask you, which is? Because at first it seems to be saying that Jesus is like, Hey, anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but not anybody can just heal you. So, in order to show you that I'm God in the flesh, in order to show you that I have power to forgive sins, I say to you, pick up your mat and walk. That seems to be what Jesus is saying at first glance. But the reason this is a question that's so brilliant and profound, and the reason we've been thinking about it for over 20 centuries, is because there's more than one answer to that question. See, on one hand... What Jesus does is the answer to that question. Of course, anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but to prove it to you that I'm the Lord of heaven, I say take up your mat and walk. But look carefully. The other way of reading it is this. Listen, guys. It's going to be infinitely harder for me to do what it's going to take to forgive sins. I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm the Savior. Any miracle worker can, can say take up your bed and walk, but not not only the Savior of the world will be able to say all of your sins are forgiven. Ask yourself, what would Jesus have to do to forgive those sins? What price was he going to have to pay? In other words, he's pointing to the cross when he says it's going to be so much harder to forgive sins than to heal your body. And many commentators say it's at this point when the shadow of the cross falls across the path of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus knows what they're thinking. Verse 8, he knows. He knows that if he heals this man, they're going to kill him. 
If he heals this man, he's taking the first step down a path to his own death. So he looks around, and he sees half the people in the room wanting to kill him, and half the people in the room wanting to use him to get their real saviors, and he forgives him. The great irony here is by doing the healing and therefore taking the first step down this road to his death, he's setting in motion the plan that would lead to our forgiveness. Jesus knows the only way he's ever going to be able to make those legs of that man mobile is if his own legs are nailed immobile to a cross. They go together, they have to go together. The only way he's going to make that man dance is if he dies. And you know, he looks at us, he sees us at our worst. Half of us are just wanting to shut him up and half of us are trying to use him to get what we really want and he loves us and he forgives us. And he loves you today. This story is about a man doing crazy things to get past all his obstacles and get to the one he loves. And I'm not talking about the paralyzed man. I'm talking about Jesus. He was reaching over obstacles to pull that man to himself. He was reaching for everyone who was there, those who were blocked by their situations, those who were blocked by their sinful patterns, those who were blocked by their self-righteousness. He was reaching over their obstacles for them. And Jesus is reaching for you today. So my prayer for you is that today you could somehow grab hold of some of that desperation to get past your situation, get past your sin, and get past your self-righteousness and get to Jesus. And the bad news is, you and I, we can't on our own. Just like this man, we are feeble. Because even if we did, we'd find other barriers, just like celebrities. We'd finally achieve what we wanted. And then we'd realize deep in our core that the things we've really been wanting are, th- are things from him and not him himself. We've all been there, haven't we? Try to use God as a means to some other end to get what we want. How can you ever get past these endless barriers inside like the onion and you peel stuff back and you're like, oh my gosh, there's even more sin and self-righteousness in there. How? How can you get past that? The good news is that Jesus Christ did it for you. He got past your sin by becoming sin and putting it to death in himself on the cross. And he got past your self-righteous pride by humbling himself even to death, even death on a cross. And he got past your worst situations you can imagine, even death for you. Because even death couldn't hold him down. Three days later, he got up and he walked out of that grave. Why did he do all that? This is what I want to leave you with. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. I'm closing. Hebrews chapter 12 comes right after 11, the hall of faith, all these famous people throughout the story of God who exhibited great faith that was a gift to them from God. And in Hebrews 12:1 it says, wherefore seeing we're compassed about by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How can we overcome our obstacles today? It's by looking at how Jesus did and seeing that he did it for you. Let me ask you a question. It says, for the joy that was set before him, what was Jesus' joy? 
Why did Jesus endure the cross? Why did Jesus scorn its shame? Why did Jesus endure such opposition? Why did Jesus overcome his obstacles? Was it for more glory? The glory of God? He had the glory of God. Was it holiness? He had holiness. Why would Jesus come to earth and overcome every obstacle, every temptation, every insult, every abuse, every false accusation and lie, every difficulty and temptation he faced? Why? It was, it was for his joy, but what was his joy? As far as I know, there's only one answer, and it's us. You, me, redeemed, made whole with him for all eternity. It's the only thing. And what that must mean is that Jesus, through his obstacles, was seeking us. Here's what Jesus is saying to you today. I was crushed so you could be made whole. I was wounded so you could be healed. I gave up my glory so you could give up your idols. I was separated from God in my suffering so that in your suffering, you would actually be drawn near to him. You would get God. I sought you. I didn't let any obstacles get in my way. So now, today, seek me and don't let any obstacles get in your way. What's your obstacle today? When we see him getting past all his obstacles for us, it will give us what we need to overcome our obstacles for him. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you so much that you loved us enough to not let anything get in the way, not let the brokenness outside of us or within us. Not let death, hell, or the grave, nothing get in your way. You sent your son to love us, purchase us back from the dead, give his life in our place so that we could have hope, so that we could have an ultimate hope beyond all the circumstantial stuff we want, the healings which are good the better jobs, the, the, the inner healings from the struggles we have with anxiety and depression, the relational healings we need, all those things are good. But you came to give us something even better that those things just point toward. And you are still a healer, and you still will heal some of those things today, especially as we bring them into community and ask for prayer from one another and ask for one another to shoulder each other's burdens. But you came to give us something so much more than something that will last us for the rest of our lives, maybe, if we're fortunate, like this lame man who was healed. Maybe he walked for the rest of his life. Only you know, Lord. But his legs stopped moving again one day when he died. And every blind eye that was opened at, at your behest, as you reached out and touched them, every leper who was healed and made whole, those blind eyes closed again in death. The skin of the leper still rotted in the grave. And they're all awaiting a better resurrection. They're all awaiting the prize that all of our hearts are really, really seeking. And that's you, eternity with you. Healed, whole, made new. I pray that you would give us, Lord, as we look at the gospel of your son today, a reminder in the strength and the wherewithal and the love and the grace to overcome our self-righteousness by trusting in your goodness to overcome our sinful patterns by trusting in in your plan, and to overcome the situations that we face when we feel weak and tired like many of us do here today, burnt out, bedraggled by life. We feel like giving up and giving in. We feel like just walking away. We ask you, Lord, by the power of your grace at work in us through the Holy Spirit, in community, on mission, 
that you would give us what it takes through Jesus Christ to bring our struggles into community and to utilize all our creativity and ingenuity and give every ounce of effort we can muster to get to Jesus, to get to you, to get to the prize that our soul really seeks. And to entrust all these lesser blessings into your hands as the good giver of gifts. And entrust the timing of all these things into your hands. To surrender our lives again, just like we did that first time, or maybe for some, for the first time today. To say, man, I've been chasing after all the wrong stuff, and the prize I've been seeking has been you all along. Thank you that you know us as we are, and you love us as we are, because we're complete in Christ. And we can come and gather around a communion table today and remember the great sacrifice with which he bought us back from the dead. I pray you would bless this time as we respond in Jesus' name.